us pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we approach your scriptures humbly. We're excited to uh, learn from your word. We pray that you would bless us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we're in our third week uh, looking at baptism. Uh, some of you are wondering how long is this going to go on? Actually, we're not even halfway through. It's going to stretch six weeks, okay? So we're just starting to unfold the argument here. We're just starting to look at baptism. All right, so I want to first, first page is just review, right? Because uh, we've been going through some uh, complex uh, arguments so far. So let's just review very quickly. Point number A, a sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible grace, right? We looked at this. And here's my little graphical representation. There's the eye, and the eye cannot see the invisible grace, but God gives us a visible sign so that we can understand and, and sort of see the, vis the invisible grace. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's the sacrament. And then uh, B, point B, circumcision is a sign of salvation. And let's read Romans 4.11. So Nathan, can I have you read that? Abraham received the sign of circumcision, the seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. Yeah. Romans 4, Paul tells us that the sign of circumcision points to what invisible grace? It points to salvation. Okay? The sign of salvation is the sign of the righteousness that he had by faith. Alright? Point number C, we're still reviewing, okay? Circumcision is a sign of belonging to the people of God. It is an initiatory rite, but not all those circumcised were saved. It is a sign of the visible, not the invisible church, right? That's a lot. That's a mouthful. So let me unpack it for you. So if we understand that circumcision is a sign of salvation, then it naturally follows that circumcision is a sign of belonging to the people of God, right? And we sort of uh, looked at this graphically. If I could draw it for you again. Let's imagine that this is the church, okay? Or the, I mean, this is the people of God. Okay? And this is the pagan world. Okay? Circumcision is the sign that you are inside here. So let me write it. Okay? If you guys can tell, it's, it's in red, appropriately. So circumcision is how you come out from the pagan world and into the people of God, right? And in that sense, circumcision is an initiatory rite. Okay? Rite means a kind of ceremony. And initiatory means how you become initiated into, how you join. Okay? And to be uncircumcised, so this is the circumcised, and to be uncircumcised is to be out here in the pagan world, right? The enemies of God. Now, just because you're circumcised, does that mean automatically that you're saved? And we looked at that, right? Circumcision is a sign. It doesn't mean you're saved. Circumcision by itself does not save you. And so there are people who are circumcised who are not saved, and we saw, right, that there are people who are not circumcised who are saved, right? And so we looked at that as a distinction between invisible and the visible church. 
Right, and then here, here I drew it for you, okay? This is a very important distinction, okay? Circumcision marks those who are inside the visible church, the people of God. But not all those who are circumcised are saved, right? And the example that uh, we looked at was the story of Jacob and Esau, right? Both Jacob and Esau are sons of Isaac. They were both circumcised according to the Abrahamic covenant when they were eight days old, but one was outside, right? One was not saved. And so we would put Esau right here, right? He was in the visible church, but he was not saved. And we saw that there was Jacob. He received the sign of belonging to the people of God, and he was saved. Right? Because why was he saved? Because he believed the promises by faith, right? Now, how do we know that there is this distinction between invisible and visible church? We know because Jesus taught us, right? What did Jesus say? Jesus said, in my church, there are sheep and goats. In my church, there are wheat and tares, Right? And for a while, they look indistinguishable, but in the end, they'll be found out, right? And so we would put the sheeps here and the goats right here. See, the sheeps and the goats both belong in the church. They both have the sign of being inside the people of God, but only one are actually saved. Only one have true faith. The others don't have faith. Does that make sense? Does that distinction make sense? Um, are there any quick questions here so far about the invisible visible church? Okay, so let's move on. Point number C, uh, D. Right, we're still reviewing, okay? This is all review. Circumcision was applied to infants. Even though infants had no faith, right? Even though Abraham received the sign of circumcision because he received the righteousness by faith, nevertheless, Abraham's children, Abraham's infant son, Isaac, received the sign even though he, he uh, what is it, even though he didn't have faith himself. So let's read Genesis chapter 17. Uh, can I have how read Genesis 17? God said to Abraham, as, you, as for you, you shall keep the covenant. You and your offspring have to be the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your first days, and it shall be a sign of the between you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house, or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh and everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. Yes. All right, great. We saw, right, that God commands Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant to apply the sign of circumcision not only to everyone who believes the promises, but to the children of the believers as well. Right? And we saw, well, how could that be? And the reason is because, and I wrote it here, God deals with humanity not as individuals, but as families, as households, okay? And maybe this offends us as modern Western people because we have an individualistic culture, right? You know, me and my family, what is that, what is that connection? You know, whatever my family does doesn't belong to me. Whatever I do doesn't affect my family. But the Bible presumes a communal culture, 
right? Whatever the head of the family does, that affects everyone in the family. His decision decides everything for the members of his household, right? And so the paradigm that we're looking at is that the head of the household, decides things for the people in his family, in his house, right? For the little children, right? So his decision of faith counts for the little children in his family, and therefore the sign of circumcision is applied to his children, right? Otherwise, how do we understand it? How do we understand the fact that God commands Abraham's children, Abraham's infants, to be circumcised? Okay? Um, now, I think a natural desire for us is to say, wait, 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 wait. If circumcision is a sign of salvation, then sh wouldn't it be better to wait until the little babies grow up and then they actually express faith, right? Wouldn't it have been better not to apply circumcision to Jacob and Esau, but to wait until they grow up? And then Esau showed himself to be a pagan, so you don't circumcise Esau. But then Jacob believed, and so you apply the circumcision to Jacob, right? And the problem with that, aside from the fact that God specifically commands infants to be circumcised, is that you're trying to collapse a distinction between the invisible and visible church. Right? We talked about this before. You're trying to basically say, uh, I don't want circumcision to only mark the visible church. I want circumcision to mark the invisible church. Right? So circumcision belongs to all those who are saved. Does that make sense? You want to collapse this distinction. So that everyone who's circumcised is saved. Right? You don't want it to be a sign of the visible church, you want it to be a sign of the invisible church. The problem is, if that's true, right, then we're going against you know, what the Bible teaches continually, which is that circumcision doesn't save you. Just because you're circumcised doesn't mean you're saved. That there are sheep and goats in the church, right? There's wheat and tares in the church. Does that make sense? Okay. All of that is review. All right, so let's go on to the new material. All right, point number one. Next page. New Testament baptism corresponds to Old Testament circumcision. So we've been looking at this link, right? That there were two sacraments in the Old Testament, and there are two sacraments in the New Testament, right? Passover is replaced by the Lord's Supper. And both of these are meals of remembrance and meals of fellowship within the people of God. And then circumcision is replaced by baptism. Both of these are initiatory rites. This is how you enter into the people of God, right? And we saw that the Old Testament sacraments are bloody. Why are they bloody? Does anyone remember? Jesus yeah, because it's pointing forward to the sacrifice of Jesus. And the New Testament sacrifices are non-bloody, right? Because Jesus has fulfilled, right, the demand of his blood. Um, and how do we know that Passover replaces the Lord's Supper? Scripturally, how do we know this? How do we know? Tommy, how do we know that Passover is replaced by the Lord's Supper? How do we know this scripturally? What do you mean? That's right. In the upper room, what was the meal that Jesus was eating with his disciples? They were eating the Passover, right? 
And he says, this Passover, you thought he was talking about this long ago, 2,000 year ago event. It's actually talking about me, right? This, bo- this bread is my body. This wine is my blood. And so he transforms the Passover into the Lord's Supper, right? In fact, the Lord's Supper, when we partake of it, looks very similar to the Passover, right? We eat bread, we drink the wine. How do we know that circumcision is replaced by baptism? And that's a very, very long discussion, but let me just give you one verse to sort of show you. Uh, Colossians 2, 11 through uh, 12. Can I have uh, Meredith read it? In him also we were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Yeah, Paul here links circumcision and baptism. Okay? Because Paul says, right, that there is something that circumcision and baptism is pointing to. And what is that thing that he's pointing to? Paul calls what? Uh, putting off the body of flesh. What is flesh? Flesh is sin, right? Putting off the sin. It's, he calls it the circumcision of Christ. He calls it the circumcision made without hands. What are all those things talking about? He's talking about salvation. He's talking about righteousness. And so he says both circumcision and baptism point to that thing. He links them. Does that make sense? Okay? And so how else do we know that circumcision is replaced by baptism? Well, the symbolism, and here's the next point, the symbolism is essentially the same. Right? We saw that circumcision uh, is the cutting off of sin and baptism is the washing away of sin. Um, right? We saw that in circumcision, the, the, the symbolism, let me write symbolism. Okay? In circumcision, you cut off the foreskin, right? What does the foreskin symbolize? Does anyone remember? Sin. Yeah, foreskin represents sin, right? Remember, uh, uh, we looked at a passage that says, right, get rid of the foreskin of your hearts, right? So foreskin is a picture of sin. And in baptism, what is the picture of sin in baptism? What's the symbol of sin in baptism? Another word for sin is what? Unclean, right? What's the picture here? It's dirt. Right? Dirt. And so, the symbolism is exactly the same. In circumcision, you're cutting off the foreskin, you're cutting off sin. In baptism, you're washing away the dirt, you're washing away the unrighteousness and the sin. And so here's Acts 22, 16. Actually, we're going to look at this a lot more later on next week, but just to give you a little foretaste. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Right? Calling on his name. Baptism is washing away your sins. Actually, baptism is a kind of ritual washing. That should be very familiar to us if we read the Old Testament, right? Because there's all kinds of ritual washings. But let's move on. Um, or is there any quick questions about the symbolism? Okay, so the symbolism is the same. Uh, point number, well, the same, uh, the next point. Both circumcision and baptism are initiatory rites, right? So we saw that uh, circumcision is how you enter into the people of God. And it's the same thing with baptism. So we can say baptism, right? It's how you enter into the people of God. Uh, let's read uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, can I have Aikman read it? For in one spirit we are all baptized in one body. Into one body, right? 
That word into, the reason I correct you is because the word into is very, very important. Right? We're baptized into the body. Right? That's how you go in. And then let's read um, Ephesians 4. Can I have uh, Wilbur read it? There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Right. Paul's talking about the body of believers, and he says baptism marks the body of believers, right? And I think that we sort of have this conception that in the church, if we think of this as the church, there are two kinds of believers in the church. We would call some, of, some believers are baptized, and some believers are not baptized. Okay? Right? There are some people who, in the church who are baptized, some people who are not baptized. But you do not find this in Scripture. Okay? You don't find it. Because look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4, right? All the believers, there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Is there any believer who doesn't have faith? No. Is there any believer who doesn't call Jesus Lord? No. Is there any believer who is not baptized? No. Okay? And look what Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19. Uh, can I have uh, Winnie read that for us? Yeah, go and make disciples. That's it. Now go and make disciples and baptize them. Right? This is the command of the Lord. And so therefore the implication is what? That baptism really is not optional. Right? All Christians should be baptized. Um, and therefore, and, and we've uh, talked about this before, right? But therefore baptism and church membership are linked. Okay? They're connected. Because baptism is a sign of belonging to the visible church. Okay? It's not, baptism isn't just sort of an optional thing you do, or it's not some sort of t-shirt that you wear that says, I'm a Christian, but it's how you enter into the visible church. Are there any questions here? <coughs> or are there any comments or clarifications? Please don't be afraid to ask. Any, any questions or any clarifications? I guess just one verse just said, you know, uh, all baptism and, you know, uh, believing in God is all the same. And so it's not, I guess it's not <coughs> separated out. And the next verse is like, okay, you need to go out and, you know, you need baptism in some part. Yeah. So it's kind of like, a, you know, saying two different things, right? <coughs> Oh, you mean, you're talking about the Great Commission here, go and there make yeah. disciples? Yeah. yeah, go and make disciples, meaning go and make non-Christians Christians. And as you do that, baptize them. Right? In fact, if you look at the New Testament, um, and, and I think this is where the modern church is a little bit different, anytime someone believes the gospel, virtually immediately they become baptized. Right? So Philip talks to the Ethiopian eunuch, he believes the gospel, and the Ethiopian eunuch is like, baptize me, right? Uh, it, at, the, at the speech in Pentecost, right? Peter preaches the gospel. 3,000 people believe. That very day they were baptized, right? And we're going to look at, yeah. So is there a gap then between uh, saved and baptized? Uh, what, what's the time we're talking about? Sure. I mean, I mean, if you look at the New Testament, it should be virtually instantaneous. 
So the moment you enter into the invisible church, you also enter into the visible church, right? So the, the New Testament, it should be like this. <laughs> Does that make sense? It should be the norm is when you're in the invisible church, you're also in the visible church, right? There shouldn't be a gap where you're in the invisible church and then you're like, five years later, you become baptized, right? That, that should not be. Uh, there is a gap for a lot of churches simply because they want to teach and properly explain baptism or maybe they want to have membership classes. I'm not going to dispute that, but uh, it shouldn't be the case where it's like years delayed. Uh, just to share a story with my sister, my sister uh, became a Christian about a year and a half ago. She still hasn't been baptized. I'm like, sis, go get baptized. You know, what are you doing waiting? She's like, I know, I know, I know. She's like, I promise, it's my New Year's resolution is to go to the membership classes and go get baptized. Good. <laughs> um, so, you know, that delay is not good, it's not right, you know, because you're not, you're not getting the benefits of the baptism, because remember, baptism is also a seal, it's a promise to God to you. And so, does that answer your question about the delay, the timeline? Well, I've seen a lot of uh, Christians delay it for many, many years. Many, many years, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm not exactly sure of their reasoning, but uh, it does happen. Sure, I understand. And so sometimes I'm not sure how to explain to them why it's important to do it sure. sooner rather than later. Sure. And so if you, because it doesn't seem like, it say that there's a, it has to be immediately after, there's a room for discussion. There's room for, yeah, some timeline, sure. But it shouldn't be years. <laughs> so I know that there are many, there are some of us here who are believers, who genuinely believe, they have faith, you've been attending church for years and years and years, but you're not yet baptized. I would urge you strongly to be baptized, and we're going to actually have baptisms uh, in just uh, the new year, okay? And so as soon as we go through this class. All right. Um, let's move on. Uh, is there any other questions or any clarifications? All right, let's move on. All right, point number two. Ah, here's where the controversy begins. All right, so far, everything I've said, virtually everything I've said is there is no dispute. There is no disagreement, okay? Everyone agrees with what I've said. This, now, point number two is where the disagreement begins, all right? And um, I want to emphasize once again very, very strongly that you do not have to agree with me in order to belong to the church. You do not have to agree with me to be a believer. All right? Um, this is one of those things where you can charitably disagree. And I want to really leave room for that, okay? Uh, in many ways, I'm not even trying to persuade you so much as I'm just trying to help you to understand my understanding. Does that make sense? Okay, so I want to, um, there are two basic groups out there, okay? There are Baptists and there are Presbyterians. That's an oversimplification, but. <coughs> <laughs> Do you want me to leave? No, no. Just don't make much noise. All right. Okay. Presbyterians believe in infant baptism. Okay. Baptists believe in what's called believer's baptism. Okay. Another word for this is um, Presbyterians believe in credo baptism. Credo means I'm sorry. Pedo baptism. Pedo means child. Uh, Presbyterians believe in pedo-baptism, uh, Baptists believe in credo-baptism, meaning you have to believe in order to be baptized, okay? They believe in adult baptism only. 
uh, Presbyterians believe in both adult and baby baptism. All right. So from this point forward, all right, since it's a controversy, I'm going to alert you to the arguments that the Baptists present. Okay, so I'm not going to just give you one side, but I'm going to present to you basically my understanding, which is the Presbyterian understanding. Okay? So all of that is a major disclaimer, okay? All right, so point number two. The question is, and I believe Jeff, Jeff, too bad Jeff's not here, right? I believe Jeff asked this last week, which is, does baptism work the same way as circumcision? Right? And that's the question. What about infant baptism? Do we see that in the New Testament? In other words, are the children of believers members of the church? And my answer is yes. Baptism works exactly the same way as circumcision. Okay? And where do we see that? And if there's any verse that is kind of like the proof text verse, I hate proof text because that's a really shallow way to read the Bible. Uh, you really can't proof text infant baptism. But if there's any proof text, it would be Acts chapter 2. And so let's read, uh, Tony, can you read Acts chapter 2 for us? This is, by the way, Paul's sermon at Pentecost, remember? So Paul is preaching in Jerusalem, and 3,000 believe, right? And this is, what, this is what happens. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. All right. Paul says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all, all those who are far off. He says the promise. What promise is he talking about? He's talking about the Abrahamic promise. He's talking about the promise given to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And if you remember, we just read it, right? The Abrahamic covenant... Who is circumcised? Three sets of people are circumcised, right? Who is circumcised? Abraham circumcised, right? Right, the righteousness that he received by faith. Who else is circumcised? Infants are circumcised, right? Abraham's children. And then who else? Foreign slaves, right? Those who are inside his household, foreigners. Right? So it's not just an ethnic marker. It's not just a sign that you're Jewish. It's for outsiders as well. So he says the promise, the circumcision goes to three sets of people. And if you look at what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, it's the exact same three sets of people, right? He says the promise is for you, for your children, and for those who are far off. Boom, boom, boom. Exactly the same. What is Peter telling the people he's preaching to? that the new covenant works, works exactly the same way as the old covenant in terms of membership, in terms of belonging to the people of God. In other words, be baptized, you and your children. Does that make sense? Now, the Baptist will argue, and here I'm going to introduce the, you know, the counter-arguments. The Baptist will say that in the New Testament, you never see an explicit command to baptize babies in the New Testament, Right? You never see, you know, Philippians chapter 5, verse 2, baptize babies. And that's true. Okay? That's true. But I think what's even more striking is you never see a commandment explicitly prohibiting infant baptism. Okay, think about it, alright? When Peter and when all the apostles were preaching to who? Who was the original audience who heard the gospel? Jews. Okay? When Peter said, Baptism is how you enter into the church. The Jews would have immediately thought the question they would have had is what? 
So baptism works basically like circumcision, right? right? My children belong to the people of God, just like in the Old Covenant, right? And if the answer was no, you can't baptize babies, wouldn't there have been an enormous uproar? Wouldn't the Jews have been angry? Like, what? what are you talking about? My children don't belong? Tell me, explain this to me, please. It would have been an enormous controversy. Paul would have written like two chapters explaining why babies weren't being baptized. But you never see that. You never see a controversy. Why not? Because the apostles never said, don't baptize your babies. It worked exactly the same way. What, it, what, was a, what was a controversy? You have to be circumcised. That was a huge controversy. We have tons and tons of chapters talking about, is circumcision necessary? But you never see a controversy regarding infant baptism, right? Okay, so that's one thing. The, there's another argument, which is that the Baptists will say, well, you can't apply baptism to infants because infants don't believe. How can you baptize people who don't actually believe the gospel? They don't actually have faith. They don't even know the gospel. I mean, I look at my little baby Judah. He doesn't know what is going on. I try to explain, but he doesn't know. He doesn't know anything. So how can you baptize someone who doesn't know what's going on? And my answer to that is, if you have a problem with baptizing infants, then you have a problem with the Abrahamic covenant. You have a problem with circumcising infants. Then. Does that make sense? Whatever problem you have with infant baptism, you have the exact same problem with, in, with infant circumcision, right? Why does God command uh, babies to be circumcised? Because even though they don't believe, the head of the household is a representative and he decides for his family and therefore everyone under his family is circumcised. And it works the exact same way in baptism. Um, questions? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Well, uh, as you're thinking about the questions, let's read two more verses, okay? Luke 18. Can I have um, Rachel read Luke 18? What does Jesus say? Who belongs in the kingdom of God? Jesus says, the children belong. The children of believers. Right? It specifically says infants. Right? They belong in the kingdom of God. It's to them. What about Ephesians 6.1? You have to remember that Ephesians, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. He's addressing the various Christians in, in the church. So remember all the various categories he goes through. He talks about slave masters. He talks to slaves. He talks to husbands, he talks to wives. And now who does he address in Ephesians 6? Can I have Ada appropriately read Ephesians 6? <laughs> yeah, Paul, you know, I can almost imagine Paul saying, and now little children, <laughs> you know, he's saying, children, Obey your parents, right? And then he cites what? The Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant, because it works exactly the same way. Do children, are children in the church or are children in the pagan world? And the answer in the Bible is children belong in the church, right? We don't consider them little pagans. We consider them little people of God, okay? Even though they may not believe. My little Judah is in the church, not out there in the pagan world. 
that make sense? Uh, are there any questions? Are there any <coughs> thoughts, comments? Yeah. So you're saying that uh, when they're baptized as infants, they're not necessarily yet believers. They're not believers, yeah. They don't believe anything. Okay. So the baptism means that they just belong to the family. In a sense, because of the head of the household. Exactly. And when the child grows up, right, when he understands, he needs to take hold of what is already his and believe. So is there a Difference between the infant baptism then and then when they get baptized when they get baptized, or do they need to get baptized again? <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't need to get baptized again. Uh, and we're actually going to talk about the whole history of this conflict. Uh, there was a group of people called the Anabaptists, and they rebaptized people. Okay, um, and so they don't need to be baptized again. Uh, uh, when, when a child is baptized, you're basically saying all the promises of salvation are yours. And so you raise that child up in the faith. Uh, I remember talking, when I first dated Christina, I remember, you know, Christina's a Christian, right? So I wanted to you know, share, how do we become Christians? I said, well, I became a Christian in junior high. I believe the gospel in junior high. When did you believe the gospel? And I remember her telling me, I always believed in the gospel. No, that's crazy. What do you mean? There must have been a time when like, you didn't believe and then you believed. And Chris said, no, no, I, always believe, I grew up believing. My parents told me the gospel and I believed. I think that's right, right? Children of believers in the church, you teach them the faith, and so they grow up always believing, right? The moment they understand, they understand faith. I mean, they understand the gospel. They, they put their faith in Jesus. Yes? And that could be a childlike faith. Say again? And that could be a childlike faith. Sure, that could be a childlike faith, absolutely. A simple trust. Any other comments or questions? Come on. Any any comments or clarifications? Oh. It seems like some of these proof texts that you're using can be argued for the Baptist side as well. Okay. In the verse in Luke, for yep. example. Jesus called to them saying, let the children come to me, mm -hmm. which would be an action of the children. And same with Ephesians, when Paul says, children, obey your parents, it's also an action that the children are performing. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not sure if infant baptism means like just child baptism in general or like, like baby baptism. But as far as I can see, babies don't have the consciousness to be able to obey their parents. Sure. Or to come to people. Sure. So, if infant baptism rested on Luke 18 and Ephesians 6, I would say the case is very weak, right? But what does, Paul, what does Peter say? The promises to you and your children. He's evoking the Abrahamic covenant. And the question I think the Baptists have to wrestle with, in my, in my opinion, is how does the Abrahamic covenant work? Why would God command infants, eight-day-old babies, to be circumcised, to receive the sign of salvation when they don't believe? When, when they're inert, babies just stay still. And I think whatever explanation that you come up with to understand the Abrahamic covenant applies also in the church. And whatever objection you have to babies being baptized in the church, you must then also object to infants being circumcised. I think infant circumcision, baby circumcision, uh, Infant baptism, they, they both fall and stand on the same arguments. Does that make sense?
do they function differently? How do they what? How do they function differently? They, they function are. exactly the same. That's the argument I'm making. They're they're linked. And so Baptists will say they work differently, right? And Presbyterians will say they work the same. Does that make sense? And so the argument rests on, are they the same or are they different? And I would say they're the same for all the arguments that I've been presenting to you up to this point. Actually, in the context there, the, bring, the bringing them actually controls how we understand the word come. Okay. Since they were bringing children to Jesus and the disciples said, don't bug Jesus, these are kids. They don't. Sure. And the coming means let them come in. Let them. It's not talking about they have to walk to Jesus for it to count. It's they were bringing him. Don't stop them. Sure. He was actually rebuking the, the disciples. Sure. Can I tell also for children obey your parents in the Lord? This is a call. Like, we wouldn't expect people that are not in the kingdom or not part of the church. We wouldn't say, everybody obey God. Because... And you know what I'm saying? Like, unless you become part of the family of God, then you're called to obey. So if you're in the family of God, you're saying, this is the household rules. We obey our parents. So it's not so much. They're definitely not justified by their obedience to their parents. Sure, sure. All right, let's let's move on to point number three, because uh, I, I do actually want to try to get through it. All right, point number three. Um, are there specific examples of infants being baptized? All right, so I think... And that's a valid question, right? Uh, so you say baptism works the same way as, as circumcision, but are there actual cases of babies being baptized? And I would say yes. And this is the case of household baptisms, all right? There are five household baptisms in the New Testament. Five times when it says someone in his household was baptized. And let's just pull out two and let's look at them, all right? Uh, they're both from uh, Acts, Acts, Acts 16. Uh, can I have uh, Alden read Acts 16, the first one, though? Yeah. Starting from 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her, ho and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Yeah, this looks very, very familiar with the paradigm we've been looking at so far, right? Lydia believes, and her entire household is baptized, right? Why? Because Lydia is the head of the household, right? And her faith counts for her children, all the little babies, everyone under her, right? Because the Bible is not an individualistic culture, it's a communal culture, all right? Let's look at next passage, Acts 16, verse, starting verse 30. Can, uh, Clarence, can I have you read it about the Philippian jailer? Yeah, again, we see the entire household was baptized. And I think what's really interesting is verse 34. It says at the very end there, and the jailer rejoiced along with this entire household that he had believed in God. I think uh, it's interesting that Luke, who narrates Acts, specifically says the jailer believed and that his household was baptized. 
right? If it meant that everyone in this household believed, then, then maybe you would say, and everyone believed. And all those who believe are baptized. No, the jailer believed, and then his household was baptized. Um, and we can see that again with Crispus, Cornelius, and Stephanus. And let's turn to the next page. Now, Baptists will respond, okay? So I want to be fair to the Baptists. The Baptists will say two arguments in response to this. They'll say, okay, the jailer's household was baptized, yes. But that's because the jailer's household had no children, right? So all the people in the jailer's household were adults. That might be true, right? There are households with no children. But Lydia's as well. And then Stephanus and Cornelius and Crispus's, right? So I think that you begin to stretch credibility there. Well, then another argument Baptists will make, well, the word household only means adults, you know, adult people. It doesn't include children. And so I want to address that very quickly here. Uh, point number four, does the word household include children? And I would say that the normal way the Bible uses the word household, I wouldn't even say normal. I can't even think of a, an example where it doesn't, right? Anytime the Bible speaks of the word household, it always includes children. And so let me give you some quick examples, and I'll read it for you for the sake of time. Genesis 30, we looked at this passage right because I preached on this. Jacob said to Laban, you yourself know how I've served you, how your livestock has fared with me, for you had little before I came, and it increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn, but now when shall I provide for my household also? He's talking about his household. Is he only saying, when shall I provide for Rachel and Leah? No, he's talking about his little children, all the little babies. He had 13 kids, right? Uh, Joshua chapter 2. The man said to Rahab, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie a, uh, the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out... And so he says, all those people will be saved. Okay. Now, when he says your father's household, is he saying basically, we're only going to save the adults. If they're little babies or children, they're not going to be saved. We're going to go and rampage and kill them. Of course not, right? Rahab's household, Rahab's father's little babies are going to be saved. That's the normal way you use the word household. Right? Uh, what about in the New Testament? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 through 5. Uh, speaking of elders, elders must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Is it talking only about adults in the household? No. The elder's children, right? The elder has to be able to take care of his little kids well. And so the word household, when in Acts and, and the five times it talks about household baptisms, is talking about children. If it didn't include children, I think the New Testament would say explicitly babies were not baptized. Because that would have been a major, major controversy. Because the Jews would have said, you mean the church acts differently in the New Testament than in the Old? You mean that my little babies are no longer inside the people of God? And they would have had questions. But Paul, there's never even a whisper of a controversy. Right? It's silent. In other words, there was no problem. Well, someone says, well, why don't they specifically say, oh, and, you know, a baby was baptized? Well, in the ancient world, you don't really talk about babies. You don't say... You know, Lydia's household was baptized, and oh yeah, baby Timmy was also baptized. You know, you don't talk about baby Timmy, right? He's in the household. You don't mention it. He's, you know, he's, he's not really significant. I'm sorry to, you know, all the little kids, but you, just, you talk about the important people, the head of the household, you know? Uh, are there any questions? 
Are there any comments? I know that was extremely fast. Actually, we're just in the third week. There will be more. Uh, we're going to talk about this a little bit more. Um, and again, I want to emphasize that you don't have to agree. It's okay to disagree with me on this issue. Okay? Uh, it's perfectly fine. You could be in the church. Uh, you could be a member of the church. Uh, and, and still disagree. Any questions? First Corinthians 7 talks about a mixed household where literally people were worried, like, the wife's a Christian, the husband's not. She's like, is that going to mess it up? Like, we're a 50-50 household. Can God work here? And yeah. he says, yeah, your children are set apart to God. They're holy, so don't sweat it. You yeah, know? we actually looked at that last oh, okay, good, yeah. <clears throat> Any other questions? No? All right, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father... Uh, we just ask uh, for your graciousness in our lives. Uh, Lord, sometimes um, we're presented with something that's new, that's challenging. Uh, but we pray that it would not be because Pastor Michael says it. Uh, it would not be because we were taught it in the past. But it would be whatever the scripture teaches. We just pray that we would be as faithful as we can to the best of our understanding uh, based on what the Bible teaches. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.